This text from the prophet Zechariah locates itself in the second year of King Darius. In case that wasn't obvious, that would be about 519 BCE. The history here is a bit complex, and I'll go into more detail later, but for now, suffice it to say that part of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians, and then the whole country was conquered by the Babylonians, and then the Persians, led by Darius, conquered the Babylonians, swept them away like a great flood, and liberated Israel from their occupation. Enter Zechariah with his proclamation of good news. Darius had saved them. The Hebrew people practically worshiped Darius. It's hardly a stretch of the imagination to believe that Zechariah's words in this text about a savior who rides astride a donkey, which of course evokes images of Jesus on Palm Sunday, were actually about the Persian emperor. But us 21st century folks have problems of our own. And I wonder, <clears throat> who is going to save us? A reading from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. Cry out with joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout jubilantly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming. He is righteous and able to save. He comes seated humbly on a donkey, on a colt, a fowl of a donkey. I will dismantle Ephraim's chariots, retire the war horses from Jerusalem, send home the archers to their families in peace. He will make peace with the nations. His sovereignty will extend from coast to coast, from the Euphrates River to the limits of the earth. As for you, because of the covenant promise I made with you through your ancestor David, a covenant sealed in blood, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pits of death. Return to your walled cities safe and secure. O hostages of hope, I announce today that I will restore to you twice as much of what was taken. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As a boy, I was terrified of slime. I realized that a lot of kids like slime. My own kids love to play with it. They sell it in toy stores, and it featured prominently in children's Nickelodeon game shows in the 90s where contestants were often drenched in the stuff for failing a particular challenge. But for my part, I've always found it to be messy, disgusting, and, well, slimy. Then again, I've also been known to eat powdered fork, uh, donuts with a fork and knife because I don't want to get anything on my hands, so... Maybe I'm the weird one. I attribute my loathing of this stuff to a book that I had as a boy. It was called The Green Slime. The story features a brother and sister who unwittingly cook up a parasitic ooze with their chemistry set. 
Intent on growth at all costs, the slime devours everything in its wake, filling their house before spilling out into their neighborhood and threatening the entire town and then the whole world. The thought of it chilled me, and it still does. This vile stuff inching its way across the floor as these children seek refuge. I'm sorry, I know it's scary. <laughs> as they seek refuge on top of their furniture and then on the roof of their house as they watch it devour the world they know. My brother was always tuned into my fears and exploited them accordingly. I'm pretty sure he was the one who gave me the book in the first place, and then he decided to have a bit of fun at my expense. While visiting my grandmother's house one day, he told me that he was also working on a little something, a kind of science experiment that he wanted to show me. He took this big mason jar and started filling it with random liquids that he'd found around my grandmother's house. Coca-Cola, bleach, Crisco, various disinfectants, old coffee grounds, food coloring, and some vermouth from a dusty bottle that he'd found in Nana's cellar. The result was a foul-smelling greenish-brown sludge that sloshed around in the jar. Now watch this, he said as he added some baking soda. The horrid stuff began to fizz and foam, evil bubbles rising to the surface as the concoction threatened to spill over the edge of the jar. Oh no, he shouted, suddenly alarmed. I can't control it. It's going to flood the whole house. I freaked out. All right, I ran out of the room screaming, convinced that we were all going to die horribly as my brother laughed, rather pleased with himself. Of course, it was all a harmless prank, but for just a brief moment, I really thought it was all over. We were all going to drown in slime, and no one could save us. In ancient Israel, about 700 years before Jesus was born, I imagine that folks were feeling much the same. For years, they had watched the armies of Assyria slowly inch their way across the Levant, their neighbors like Damascus, Tyre, and Sidon, falling one by one to the conquest of the Assyrian war machine. These political and military forces had reached Jerusalem's doorstep before something even worse happened. A greater nation still, Babylon, crushed the Assyrian forces and then laid siege to Jerusalem. In 586 BCE, the city fell along with Solomon's temple and her people were dragged back to Babylon as slaves or exiled. The slime of empire had swallowed them whole. The prophet Zechariah, preaching about 60 years later, finally had some good news. Much as Babylon had conquered Assyria, the Persian Empire had come along and conquered Babylon. There is, as they always say, a bigger fish. Except that the Persians, relatively speaking, were fairly benevolent overlords. Their emperor, Darius, had liberated the captives in Babylon and allowed them to go home to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. These people, these ancient Jews 
had been devastated, drowned in blood and imperial ambitions, enslaved, and at long last their salvation was at hand. This is Zechariah's context. He says in this passage that God will free your prisoners from the waterless pits of death. Yes, I chose this particular translation because it was so dramatic. But in the original Hebrew, the waterless pit of death is basically just a dry cistern, an empty well. Some of you may recall that in 1987, an 18-month-old girl named Jessica McClure fell into a well in Texas. The plight of baby Jessica, as she came to be known, made international headlines and ushered in the era of 24-hour live news coverage. My wife, Angela, was nine years old at the time, and she was transfixed with terror, as she tells me, glued to the television as she watched the thrilling rescue attempt unfold in real time. That story had a happy ending. Much like Israel, Jessica was rescued from the well, lifted out of the waterless pit of death. Just as Israel was saved from Babylon, Jessica was saved by a crew of emergency workers and a desperate feat of engineering. As for the rest of us, well, we're saved by grace. Grace is a difficult concept for us to grasp because it's so counterintuitive to human society, which is transactional, litigious, and built on a foundation of debt. Grace can't be bought, sold, or earned. And in our culture, everything has to be earned. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I realize that you can't build a civilization for free. The mutually beneficial exchange of goods and services that give and take is the proverbial and literal cost of doing business. But that exchange is often uneven, lopsided, and, well, slimy. Think payday loans, predatory credit cards, and some prime mortgages, and you begin to see what I mean. My older brother, who consolidated his massive student loans at historically high interest rates and ended up working in the nonprofit sector, labored under his debt for years. I'll never forget the letter he received after he graduated from college, which detailed his 30-year repayment plan because the language was so dystopian. This loan will be forgiven only in death, it stated coldly. You will now enjoy convenient monthly billing. <laughs> now, as it turns out, he did actually manage to get that loan forgiven after a decade or so, thanks to the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. I'm happy to say that after 17 years, I also managed to get the remainder of my student loans forgiven under the same benefit just a few months ago. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of red tape, and it took me almost a year to get through the process. And I spent a lot of time on the phone listening to automated messages about the proposed student loan forgiveness legislation and how it was held up in court. And now, as of last week, the Supreme Court has struck it down. Now, look, I know this is a 
complicated issue and not everyone supports this kind of loan forgiveness. And I'm not saying that you have to. This is just one man's perspective. But if I'm being honest, I do feel bad for folks who were promised a jubilee only to have the rug pulled out from under them. I went to college on a full scholarship and graduate school on a half scholarship. And I still managed to rack up over $65,000 of student debt. And when the cost of tuition has gone up 3,000% since the 1960s, and when loans are being taken out by teenagers who aren't entirely aware of the ramifications, and when a college degree is almost essential for finding gainful employment, and when the federal minimum wage hasn't gone up since 2009, I can't help but feel that maybe a little grace is in order. The Supreme Court also struck down affirmative action last week. Again, very complex issue. And affirmative action has not always been a perfect solution to racial discrimination. And it's not without its problems. But it was an attempt, at least, to recognize that folks who aren't white have effectively been playing the game with one hand, sometimes both hands, tied behind their back for generations. They've been profoundly disadvantaged and marginalized. And affirmative action is really just a little grace that attempts to level the playing field. And again, I can't help but feel like a little grace is in order. In a third landmark decision last week, the court also made it legal to discriminate against folks in the private sector for just about any reason. This was a devastating blow to civil rights, especially for the LGBTQ plus community. And as Justice Sotomayor writes in her dissent, although the consequences of today's decision might be most pressing for the LGBT community, the decision's logic cannot be limited to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. The decision threatens to balkanize the market and allow the exclusion of other groups from many services. A website designer could equally refuse to create a wedding website for an interracial couple, for example. Sotomayor presses further. When a young Jewish girl, she writes, and her parents come across a business sign out front that says, no dogs or Jews allowed, the fact that another business might serve her family does not redress that stigmatizing injury. No dogs or Jews allowed. Maybe that's hyperbole. I sincerely hope it is. It's happened before, though. And there's no reason to believe that it can't happen here, not when protections like these are systematically dismantled and grace is no longer extended to certain groups of people. And I can't help but feel that a little grace is in order. I'm sure there are a lot of different perspectives on these issues. My word is not gospel truth. I don't raise these matters because I want to be political. I know that these are more complex than I can really address in a 15-minute sermon. I raise them because I think they illustrate what grace is and what it is not. Grace forgives debts. Grace levels the playing field. Grace recognizes everyone as a child of God. Rights and privileges are being taken away from vulnerable people. 
Jesus once said, to those who have much more will be given, but to those who have little, even what little they have will be taken away. But as God reminds us in this text, I announce today that I will restore to you twice as much as what was taken. I don't remember how the green slime ends. Actually, I didn't mention this before, but it was one of those choose-your-own-adventure books that were so popular in the 80s. The reader could decide how the story progressed, with some conclusions being a lot happier than others. I'm sure there were numerous endings with folks being devoured by the flood of slime, but I don't really know what the happy endings looked like, whether the deadly ooze was dissolved by some chemical reagent or washed away in a flood of biblical proportions. I just don't know. I don't know how our story ends either, but maybe we get to decide. God's grace is free. As we say in our baptism liturgy, Jesus Christ calls us to offer God's grace to all people in baptism. But the flood of God's grace does not stop at baptism. It spills over into every aspect of our lives. You see, that grace isn't just ours. It's ours to share. It's ours to extend all the way from God to one another. Every time we forgive someone that wronged us, every time we forgive a debt, every time we give someone else the benefit of the doubt, every time we ensure that people are included, every time we extend more rights to the marginalized, every time we give something away for free, we are like drops of water in a great flood of grace. Friends, we cannot wait for the powers that be to be gracious. We have to be gracious ourselves. Will it be enough to wash away the stains of prejudice and exploitation? I don't know. But I know that it's our choice to make. Amen.